One of the things I'm noticing in these conversations with brilliant people is how often they have a love of learning, and how often that hasn't come from their schooling, but from some other source. Today's innovator, Ross Smith, certainly has that love of learning. And he has to, because working at Microsoft, he and his team are at the centre of the race to apply generative AI in safe and practical ways. Ross's curiosity leads him to innovate in and out of work. As a software engineer, he holds seven patents. And when he and I first came across each other, Ross was experimenting with new and better ways to manage teams, using games to increase trust and productivity in diverse teams, and encouraging grassroots innovation. Ross spoke to me early in the morning from his home in the hills above Seattle. You're listening to The Innovator's Journey, a podcast about the lives and careers of creative people, technology, and the future of work, with your host, Jonathan Winter. Ross Smith, hello, and welcome to The Innovator's Journey. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Before we start, in a couple of sentences, could you describe what you do and why it matters? Sure. So I work at Microsoft in the Modern Work Organization, or Microsoft 365, and our team is known as the Supportability Team. We are responsible for providing self-help content and diagnostics for both customers and for support engineers. Good. We'll, we'll come on to that a little bit more later, won't we? This podcast is called The Innovator's Journey. So I'm keen, first of all, to hear a little bit about your personal and professional journey, Ross. Where does the Ross Smith story begin? It begins in Madison, New Jersey in the U.S., which is northwestern New Jersey, relatively small town. Grew up there and then went to university nearby, a little south of there, Ryder University. Who or what were your strongest influences? I would say my grandmother was probably my, my biggest influence. She lived nearby, spent a lot of time with her. She was a librarian, and I sort of inherited or learned the love of reading from her. And you read a lot, don't you? I do read a lot. What's a lot? I would say in a, in a good week, about a book a week, sometimes two. So if I put a page count, probably 300 pages a week. How do you find time in a busy life to do all that reading, Ross? I've always had this philosophy, and only recently I stumbled onto the name of it, which is called multifinal means, which is, you know, means to an end. So a multifinal means is when you can do one thing that serves multiple goals, two or more goals. And so in this particular case, I like to read on the treadmill. So I'll walk, jog on the treadmill while reading a book. My mind is boggling as I'm trying to imagine you like sprinting with a book. In front sprinting, of your nose. sprinting, no, but, but walking or walking at an incline. Great. So your grandmother was an influence and she helped encourage this love of reading that you have and you managed to fit it in by multifinal means. Anything else from your early years that you would regard as a special advantage like that encouragement from your grandmother? Or did you have any particular disadvantages? So I, the way I describe it is I was kind of the, the kid in elementary school who could show up and get an A. And then in middle school, I could show up and get a B. 
high school, I could show up and get a C. And I'm in a PhD program now. And if you do the extrapolation math there, <laughs> we'll see how that goes, right? But it was interesting because it wasn't until after university that I realized I really do love learning. So I, I think just the classroom setting was not for me, right? I, I like to learn at my own pace, whether that's faster or slower than the classroom. I do like having, being able to set my own pace. I think that's the biggest piece there. When did you first discover that love of learning for yourself? I would say after I graduated university and probably well into my first job, started to realize there was so much that I wanted to do that was outside of my day job, which is still true today. And just that freedom of being able to pursue something of interest and rather than negotiating that into being part of my day job, just being able to do it on my own. So after graduating, I started a side business, making t-shirts that ended up being relatively successful, realizing like, hey, I can do things, you know, beyond work that really opened up a, a freedom that I really is still enjoy today. When did you first take an interest in programming, Ross? Because you've now worked for Microsoft for many years, haven't you? So this is your current job. When did that interest first kindle for you? Yes. So it's, it's in my early life education journey, I happen to be very good at math, which, you know, I, I've learned as a parent gets reinforced by others, right? Oh, you're so good at math. You're so good at math. And then you start to believe it. So I was in an advanced math class where we were introduced to computer programming in 10th grade. And so this would be 1977, maybe. Wow. So quite early days in personal computing then. Yeah. There was an old HP teletype, which was pr no, no display. I actually learned to program on punch cards. The language was basic. We stored the programs on ticker tape. And the cool thing is in high school, quote unquote, cool, was to see how tight you could wind the ticker tape, right? And then you had a piece of tape. And so you'd have like three <laughs> or four programs in your pocket. And so then after that, my family got a Commodore PET, one of the early personal computers, and then the Commodore 64 after that. And so I spent a lot of time learning basic, and there were some rudimentary games that we played. So. I remember those days. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you went to business school, and I think there was some programming that you still did in, in business school, but it wasn't the career you first started in. Yes. So I had the goal of continuing programming, and... Some of the requirements did not allow any programming courses until senior year. And, and then I got this graphic arts job in the, in the school's graphic arts center. And I had this wonderful manager who was kind of a, a total hippie, just totally laid back. The, the prototypical, you know, 1960s, 1970s artist. And it was, very, it was a very interesting insight that I didn't realize till years later, but I worked harder for her than any other job I'd ever had. Isn't that interesting in terms of management style and exactly, education? Exactly. So I like to think that I developed a lot of my own management style from that realization to give people the freedom, you know, and, and find ways to have them motivate themselves was a tremendous insight being told what to do versus, hey, you know, 
how do you want to develop yourself as an artist or how do you want to look at this poster you're making or this t-shirt design you're making and then just having her step back and just letting me go whether it was success or failure like I feel like that's you know and, and you could call it McGregor theory x theory y you know there's a lot of management theory on that I don't think she was that deliberate about management theory but the way it manifested for me was a realization of like wow I, I really want to go do this and make this person happy with my work because of my own sort of inherent pride and responsibility not because someone was telling me what to do now ross having experienced that freedom in the graphic art studio i would imagine that your career then followed the path of exploring environments which were all about freedom tell me what you did with your career next yes so <laughs> interesting great question so when i graduated i graduated early did not have the best grades and so found it somewhat difficult to to find a job and one of the outcomes of programming is you know how to type right so i was i was very good at i don't remember exactly i want to say 100 120 words per minute of typing so i found that i could get a job as a, as a typist right so the first job i got was typing arrest warrants at the sheriff's office in the county where i grew up and so I was literally in the secretary pool typing arrest warrants. The way that that worked is basically you would type the the entire warrant or the majority of the warrant, but really the name, the date, the crime would change, but everything else was the same. So I mentioned to him, I'm like, hey, you know, you could do this on a computer. And so then one of the corporals had a Radio Shack TRS-80 early personal computer, and he brought that in. And then I wrote a little program to, to loop and just print out by hand. Most of the work was to actually reproduce the sheriff's signature in a sort of dot matrix printer. And so they ended up wanting to hire me. So it didn't, it didn't lead to a career in forgery then? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. The sheriff hired me as a correction officer. So I went to the police academy for training. And then the agreement was I would work one day a month in the jail, usually operating the, the door. But then the rest of the time I would work on PC applications for the sheriff. And I did have one work release inmate who was a white collar criminal and he was he came and worked with me during the week. Ross, did that experience of working in a prison environment, did that did that change you in any way? You know, the the interesting thing was was kinda working closely with someone who was incarcerated, you know, made me look at at that differently, you know, and, and sort of thinking more broadly. And I'll fast forward, I gave a talk one time at the London Business School, a different time from when you and I met, but someone asked me, how do I manage out low performers? And I said, you know, everyone is a low performer at some point in their life, right? As viewed by their manager or their employer. People go through up and downs, they have life issues going on, maybe a sick child, a sick parent, and that's going to impact your performance. And sometimes dramatically as in you wind up in prison and other times maybe you just have a bad day, right? And so I think that was a lot of what I took out of that, that time. 
I can see how some of these experiences influenced your later interest in management and in managing teams. Because I know at Microsoft, you've, you've taken a great interest in doing innovative things with teams, including introducing games into the way people work. What's been the, the highlight of how you've successfully managed teams, things that people have really responded to? I think one of them, and we, we wrote a paper on this, but we called it the WeOrg, which was sort of an interesting set of circumstances that ended up with me having essentially no boss during a reorg. And so I had been talking to people about how people generally either follow their tech interests or they follow their manager. And it got interpreted by people basically responding like, wow, we get to choose what we do. And I mean, I believe that to be true, but not necessarily in a formal way. But I'm like, sure, yeah, let's go for it. So we did this experiment that I would do every single time if I was ever allowed to, which is the managers chose their area. So the managers chose first, and then the next level down, what we called leads, the leads chose next, and then the individuals all chose. So people essentially opted into the, the work area they wanted to work in, is that it? Yes, exactly. And so with no constraints, it's not like we said, okay, there's seven positions here. It's like, hey, whatever you want to do. So then at the end, we had this sort of big celebration meeting where people would kind of walk up from the room and stand next to their new manager, right? So the teams would kind of form. In hindsight, one of the, I would say, interesting observations was the most popular manager took the new technology, what became the most popular technology. So we had a pretty vast imbalance between teams. And so then we ended up with sort of, I guess, just rough math, one team having 30 people and another team having 11. And that was a little bit awkward, but we went with it. It turns out within a few months, the higher level strategy shifted such that the organization was moving in the direction of the large team. And again, obviously in hindsight, that technology was mobile, mobile phones, right? Everyone wanted to work on mobile phones, which in 2007 was obviously the next big thing. So they were getting it right. They were forecasting correctly where things yeah. were going. And it was and kind of wisdom of the wisdom of crowds. Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, thinking about it, and that's why I would do it again, because it would tell you things that maybe you don't recognize as significantly as you should. Right, and yeah, some sort of marketplace to harness the wisdom of people at the cutting edge, um, not just in the senior jobs. Have you tried it again since then? I have not. They, I just haven't had the opportunity to, to have that much freedom, let's say. So just thinking of your career again, after you left the prison, you got married, I think. There were some startups that you were involved in, and then you came across Microsoft. Tell me that, how that happened. Yes, yeah, so I, I moved from New Jersey to Florida had my first daughter, did a, a couple startups. One interesting one was with handheld computers. And then in, let's see, 1991, probably summer, June of 91, there was there, there used to be this thing still around, but this technology called a newspaper, which is a piece of paper with news on it. <laughs> but one of the things that, that those- Or job ad, is that how you got the job? <laughs> yes, those, they used to have want ads printed in the- in the back of the newspaper. And so one day there was a big ad for Microsoft and hiring support engineers in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so I went and interviewed 
and, and got the job. And the rest, they say, is history. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you moved after a while to Seattle, where obviously Microsoft is, is headquartered, and then rose through the ranks, I guess, from support engineer, as you described, to director of test, director of engineering for Skype Translator, director of Skype for Good, and now engineering manager for modern workplace supportability. Yes. As you look back at all those years at Microsoft, is there a highlight that you feel most proud of? You know, uh, there there are several. There's sort of the checkbox things of software patents, but one of my life goals was to to go in again, sort of a, as a testimony to the influence of my grandmother, to walk into a bookstore and see my own book on the shelf. So you wrote a book, which I believe was called The Practical Guide to Defect Prevention. Yes, exactly. Yes. The, the Sounds useful for all of us, Ross. Popular bestseller. Yes. You can get it on Amazon for 43 cents, I think. And you mentioned that you've got some patents and they're mostly in the area of software testing and defect prevention. You're not so senior that you're way, way away from the technical things then these days. Right. No, I, I feel very privileged to be sort of at ground zero for for new technology and new thinking yeah and you've talked about some highlights and the book particularly are there any setbacks or low lights that you had to overcome in your career overall you know it's been interesting because i i would say the short answer right now is no but there were several that at the time i felt were low lights people generally go through management and you kind of have a proxy team size is kind of a proxy for success in management and i've gone you know so i was an individual contributor in support then i moved to engineering then i moved to first level manager with a team of five then a second level manager with a team of 30 but then i moved back to being an individual as an architect and then again up to a team of four five up to a team of 80 to another team of 80, to a team of 400, back to an individual. Maybe careers don't go in straight lines. <laughs> yeah. And so at the time, you know, to go from a team of 400 to being an individual contributor feels like a setback, you know. But for me, it was, it, it probably taught me the most about management and influence, right? The influence you have as a manager of versus the influence without authority of being a manager and really recognizing how to remain aware of that when you're a manager, right? So making it okay to say, oh, I'm wrong. You know, uh, a lot of times in managers, you equate that to poor leadership, but it's actually sort of the opposite, right? Is being inclusive and letting mm-hmm. everyone contribute in, in various perspectives to flourish. Great. Thank you. So as you look back at your career as a whole, Ross, how do you make sense of it? Yeah. You know, I feel very fortunate to be on this ride at a large tech company through the rise of tech. If I think back to that high school printer with punch cards and what we can do today on a mobile phone or a watch, it's amazing to see how technology has changed and to be able to ride that wave has just, I've been really fortunate and also fortunate that Microsoft has stayed relevant. So many tech companies exist for a short period of time and then find themselves sort of on the outside and 
it's been great to be at one that stayed relevant. Thank you for telling us about your personal and professional journey, Ross. Before we talk about your innovation itself, I asked you to think of an artifact that represents your creative journey or your creative process. What have you chosen? So as, as I mentioned, I was, I was a graphic artist and enjoyed that. I've always kind of done drawings and then I do block print holiday cards I've done for many years. But during the pandemic, I took up acrylic painting. And so that's sort of a or a good artifact. I can't say I'm great at it, but I can say I'm learning a lot. You've chosen a particular picture and I'm looking at it, Ross, and it's it's a beautiful picture of the mountains. I can see conifer trees on either side. The mountains look spectacular and snow covered. I know you like snow because you go snowboarding from where you live. So yeah, wh wh where is this picture of then, Ross, and why does it inspire you in terms of creativity? So almost all of these are in my head not actually a real but you know what is it based on it looks a, real based, looks almost photographic based on a true story yes why i chose that one is it's one of the biggest i've done but it's also where i've started to learn how to paint clouds which for those that live in the mountains obviously happen pretty regularly you can see still some work to do there but it's been a great journey and and something to be able to pick up and learn and watch youtube videos and Bob Ross and Joy of Painting and all, all that to really learn how to make, make things look real. Thank you. So we'll be back shortly to talk about the work you're doing now and your vision for how work itself is changing. You're listening to The Innovator's Journey, a podcast about the lives and careers of creative people, technology, and the future of work with your host, Jonathan Winter. Ross Smith, the innovation we're featuring today is your work on proactive customer support. So I'm thinking of my own experiences of customer support. I mean, I think the worst experiences have been ones where I get a kind of automated chatbot and it doesn't really have a clue what I'm trying to ask and I cannot get hold of a human. That is so frustrating. But I'm thinking you may be telling us something a little bit different these days. So how would you describe what good customer support looks like? Well, ultimately... I, a good customer support is, is no need for customer support, right? Things just work, right? But <laughs> when and if they don't work, we want to get to a resolution the fastest way possible, right? And so I definitely understand oftentimes it, it feels a lot more comforting to get to a human so that you can describe an issue. A lot of the work we're doing around self-help and diagnostics targeted at IT admins is to really empower them to, to help themselves so that they don't have to wait for a human, but to give an option for a human if possible. And so as we think about the advent of ChatGPT, large language models, generative AI, it maybe changes the game a little bit where, you know, to your experience, the chatbot is more thorough, right? Is more accurate, is faster than waiting for a human. How big is that opportunity, do you think? Well, it's, it's hard to say. This, this space is moving very quickly and, you know, changes every day. But we are very optimistic. Initially, the experience will really be targeted at our support engineers and making them more effective. This is people working for Microsoft then, so it's your support engineers that you're going to make more effective initially. Yes, I, because I think we're at a stage in this technology where having a human in the loop is still important. So it's not, it's not directly supporting the customer at this point? Not at this point, no, because the, the, the risk, you know, you've 
may have heard the term hallucination, which is an error in, in the, mm. the model. And um, Chat GPT going very wrong, making things up. Yes. And so that risk to our customers is significant, right? And I can imagine there are a lot of industries where that concern is shared. So, I mean, you know, most obviously in things like healthcare or critical types of mm -hmm. engineering where safety is paramount, that's going to be a concern, isn't it? So I think there'll be a lot of industries that are interested in this sort of I suppose it's an intermediary step, really, isn't it? Where the first improvement is the support that you're providing to support engineer. They are then providing that to the customer. Yes. The combination of human plus AI is going to be better than either one on its own. Right. And that's that's the real excitement of this time. So as a as a sort of creative partner, you know, leveraging the AI and the models that way will make humans more effective, more powerful, more efficient. And so we are going about it where we've collected up hundreds of thousands of our support documentation and put them in a uh, chat GPT model on then working with subject matter expert to help us validate the accuracy and then continuing to tune our documentation, tune our model building to improve that accuracy to a point where support engineers can be can be more effective, more efficient. So in the past, a support engineer would have done what? They kind of type in using search terms or something and found it in the documentation and then read a paragraph or two from a particular page or something like that? Exactly, exactly. So we have internal wikis and, and a lot of internal documentation. They would go and search for a solution, search for an answer, and now they can interact directly with the model. And the model will essentially summarize the answer for them. It'll dig, it'll find the answer, maybe even refer them to where it's come from and summarize the, the answer. Is that right? Yes, yes. And it's important to, you know, Microsoft has a set of principles for responsible AI, one of which is transparency. So we do always provide a citation for the engineer to get back to the original source documentation. And what's sort of a game changer for the support engineer is because it's a chat model, it retains context. So if you're not sure of the first answer, you can ask a follow-up question and come back with additional documentation. So if I'm trying to fix blurry video in Microsoft Teams call, I may get a list of steps and then I have a question on step three. Like, hey, how do I do step three? And so that part has, has been really powerful for our support engineers. What's proving most difficult in making this work really well, Ross? I think it's, and I think this will be true for a lot of organizations, is the source content. So there's a, this concept we call co-mingling. If you have two documents that answer the same question slightly differently, the model will bring those both together and sort of combine and make up a third answer, which may or may not be correct. And so thinking about how do we clean up and organize our documentation and help me get my head around how you use the two things, the training data, which has got your kind of controlled data set, and the large language model, which forms the basis of GPT. How do you bring those two things together? So maybe a good way to think of it is the source content sits on top of the regular model, and then we can use the technology of the underlying model, but constrain or restrict the answer to come only from our source content. Yeah, tell it to look at the manual. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, maybe that's a good point to take us on to talk about the future of work, Ross. If we look forward in, let's say, five or 10 years, what is working in a business going to be like? Yeah, it's a fascinating time. And, you know, I, I started my PhD program several years back, 
looking at AI and worker displacement, and this has come really at least a couple years sooner than I had anticipated. I was figuring maybe 2025, 2026. And as I mentioned, I think the combination of human plus machine is going to be better than either one individually for a while, right? So I don't think it's imminent, but the way I look at it is we have this opportunity where because this technology is so new and it's moving so quickly, we all start at the same place. So everyone has an opportunity to kind of learn and get good at it. And and it's not going to be the AI that replaces you. It'll be your neighbor who's really good with the AI that replaces you. And when I think about the future of work, you know, we look back over history and whether it's the wheel or fire or the printing press, the steam engine, the telephone, the airplane, the, the car, as different facets of work are improved through these technologies, humans have been able to adapt, right? Back in the late 18th century, making cloth comprised of two main jobs, spinners who spun the the cotton into thread and weavers who wove the thread into cloth. And the spinners were completely displaced by the power loom. And the weavers, those who could keep up with the speed of the new machine, they were treated like rock stars, company housing, free food, great benefits. And what happened is that the cost of cloth went down and people started to use it for, for new things, right? So they put cloth on the walls with drapes. Instead of one outfit or one shirt, fashion started to come into play and you have different shirts for different days. So the curious thing is what will happen now. And and I look back in the in the nineteen seventies with the the handheld calculator and all the sort of uproar about calculators in math class. Right. And and so ultimately it was allowed in most classrooms. And the generation that was raised with the calculator in the classroom is the generation working on big data and data science and all the things we see today, right? So Hmm. clearly humanity has survived Hmm. the calculator in math class. If we think about the future of work, what is it that is going to be uniquely human that will continue to be valuable in a world full of AI? So I think, and this will be true for a while, and maybe not forever, but I think what's really fascinating to me is I can interact with the AI and say, okay, I need an agenda for the meeting later. So as a human, I can come up with the agenda. Or I can interact with the AI and say, hey, based on the last five meetings, can you give me an agenda for this upcoming meeting? And it'll give me a a list. And I'll look at that list and say, okay, yep, yep, yep. Ooh, no, not that one. That's that. We don't need that. And yep, yep. Oh, wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Right. And so, again, the combination of the human plus the machine, it's much faster. Right. It comes up with that agenda in, you know, 10 seconds. I can scan Mm. it as a human and determine yes, no, wow, really. And I can do that. The human judgment of context, I guess, is one of the key things you're saying, is it? Yes. Yes. I think that that piece, and what's interesting to think about is that. Uh, for those who've who've spent some time in ChatGPT and you know looking at this, you get better over time. You realize, hey, I can say, you know, act like a travel agent. Tell me about Paris. Right? You okay. learn these things, and so you get so this, better. This is, this is the art of prompt engineering. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
So what are your best tips for a good prompt? That's a longer conversation. The, the, I, think, I think the key is understanding that you can shape, for lack of a better term, the personality. And so things like act as, act as an editor, act as a support engineer for Microsoft Exchange, right? And you can, you can guide it and say, okay, assume that the reader has detailed knowledge of the subject or assume the reader has no knowledge of the subject and, and kind of tailored as if you're brainstorming with another person that you've never met, right? And so giving its guidelines to say, teach me about photosynthesis as if I were a third grader or describe error code CX00483 to a seven-year-old, <laughs> right? Things like that, <laughs> that are just fantastic. One of the ones I, I really love is metaphors. It's really good. Mm -hmm. and, and so give me a metaphor to describe spam email along with Roman aqueducts. Very clever. And so if you think about sort of the future of work or the future of humanity, I think humans can up their bar in creativity and, and be thinking of, of things, you know, that the, the models can respond to tie together Roman aqueducts and spam. Stuff, so it's a real but, spur for creativity. Yeah. And as a result, it can speed us up quite a lot. But the human is still essential. Yes. So again, the, the, the two of us together, the machine and I, are better. And if we, if we wrap up at this point, then you've talked vividly about how much pleasure you're getting from being around at this particular juncture in, in the history of technology. You know, after a 30-year career in technology, this is a moment where there's a lot of new stuff happening. If you were then looking back and giving advice to your younger self, what would you say? Stay curious, right? If I think back, I first learned to program in basic, the basic language, not used that much today. Right? And so if I were a basic programmer, the way I was at the start of my career, I would be displaced, right? But I'm still here because I've evolved with the technology. And so that only comes from continuous learning and staying current trying to predict, okay, where is this going to go? Like what happens when the AI is better than human? And be ready for that and, and be studying and prepared for that. Sounds as though you're making use of the curiosity that you inherited from your grandmother, Ross. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. And as well as advice to yourself, give, give me a word for the world. Let's suppose you had a, a giant billboard on which you could write anything. What would you say? Yes, I would say engage with the technology, right? We're, we're all starting at the same place. You know, seven months ago, none of us knew this was here, right? So jump in, experiment, read about prompt en engineering, read about how the model works, play around, get creative, write papers, write articles, and become good at it because then, you know, as I mentioned, it's not going to be the AI that replaces people. It's going to be your neighbor who's good with the AI. Be that neighbor. Ross Smith, thank you so much for sharing your story and your innovation and your vision for the future of work. Great. Well, thank you for having me and, and thank you all for listening. Please reach out, get in touch. Uh, love to hear more. Thank you for listening to The Innovator's Journey with me, Jonathan Winter. If you enjoyed today's story, do share it with your friends and colleagues and subscribe to make sure you hear future episodes. 
This podcast was recorded in Riverside, edited and transcribed automatically in Descript, with algorithmic music from SoundDraw and artwork generated with DAL-E. The rest was human.